Hey, this is Dan Denver, host of The Dig. Before we get started, I need to take a moment to do something very important, which is to ask you for money. Last week, we crossed the $1,000 a month mark on Patreon, and we're thrilled. Our new goal, however, is to reach 1,000 patrons on Patreon by the end of the year. And so, if you're one of the thousands of listeners who hasn't donated yet, please consider doing so. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. We also have some exciting rewards to offer. For at least $5 a month, you become a fellow traveler and can pose questions to our guests. For at least $10, you become a party member, which means you can pose questions and you get a copy of Jacobin's book, The ABCs of Socialism, mailed to your door. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Thanks. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The Obama administration's expansion of Medicaid was a rare extension of an otherwise battered safety net. Obamacare, for all of its failures, expanded the health insurance program to cover millions of Americans, and it would have counted many more amongst its beneficiaries had Republican governors around the country, abetted by the Supreme Court, not callously refused to expand coverage to poor working-class people in their states. They did that in order to take a shot against Obama and model austere libertarian virtue for primary voters and right-wing donors. And it was Medicaid expansion, it turned out, that saved Obamacare from repeal. Obviously, there's a lot to hate about Obamacare, which requires people to buy health insurance from private companies without even providing them with a public option. But Medicaid expansion did do something that was very good on a very large scale, and it made just enough Republicans very, very nervous about taking it away. Trumpcare's demise offers an important lesson about economic policy more generally. The more universal a program is, the greater the number of Americans who become advocates for its preservation. This is a fact that conservatives know and fear, thanks to Medicare and Social Security, but that many establishment liberals since the Democratic Party's neoliberal turn have failed to understand. Or, perhaps, that some Clintonites understand all too well. Today, my guest is Matt Brunig, a writer who is one of the most incisive analysts of poverty, inequality, and welfare systems, and the political conflicts that surround them. Matt Brunig, welcome to The Dig. Uh, Thanks for having me. It seems like Medicaid expansion and the millions of people it enlisted as constituents saved Obamacare. What do you think happened and what lessons does that hold for how we should think about economic policy more generally? So Medicaid was the most effective and most popular part of Obamacare. Um, It was even there was a thing called Medicaid envy, which was also something that was observed by people who kind of studied attitudes about Medicaid. So it includes Medicaid envy was basically if you made maybe just enough to get over the Medicaid line and kind of got stuck on the uh, exchanges 
you were often really pissed about that because Medicaid was a much more pleasant experience than buying a private health insurance plan with, you know, $10,000 deductible and all these other things. Um, so it's not surprising, I guess, that it was, uh, you know, what sort of kept ACA afloat. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it just goes to show you, not surprisingly, that these simple public health insurance programs end up creating far better constituencies and support bases than these like complicated Rube Goldberg machines like Obamacare, which has all these weird moving parts are kind of miserable to deal with. Um, so the upshot would be grow public insurance and try to cut down on private insurance as much as you can. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like ironically, one of the most popular things about Obamacare uh, wasn't any of the sort of um, marketplace uh, innovations <laughs> that it that it put in place, which have been a disaster with high premiums and high deductibles and and other problems, uh, but just expanding an already existing program, Medicaid. Um, do you think that the collapse of Trump Care and the serious problems facing actually existing Obamacare open uh, a create opportunities for the left to push for single payer? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, anytime you can kind of get out of defensive mode, that's helpful for opening up new horizons about doing new and good stuff. Um, right now or for the last month or two, it's just been like, protect what we have, protect what we have. You, you know, don't bad mouth Obamacare why are you talking about, you know, single payer when what we do have is in such peril? Um, but as soon as that peril goes away and you realize the right wing really doesn't have any ability to, uh, to tear things back down from, from, from where we've built it up, um, it's a lot easier to say, okay, what's next? Um, and I think you've kind of seen that because since, um, Trump care failed uh, John Conyers bill HR 676 in the house has gotten a record number of democratic co-sponsors. He's been introducing it since 2003. And this is the first year in which he's gotten, I think it's now up to 81 democratic co-sponsors. Um, it seems like every day uh, another democratic politician in the house gets, uh, you know, gets gets on board for one reason or another. Um, and even some sort of progressive stalwarts like Elizabeth Warren had previously been just kind of quiet about what she thinks about it. And I think she, she um, an interviewer asked her about it and she indicated that she, you know, is for single payer. So it, it it seems in, in in fact whatever the hypothetical theoretical question of whether we would be able to shift to Obamacare or rather shift to single payer it just just seems to have happened for one reason or another so that's good. You recently had a piece making the case that critics of single liberal critics of single payer are moral monsters on par with um, uh, Trump care proponents. Your argument was pretty straightforward. Can you can you lay it out? 
Yeah, the argument was just if you look at the CBO report about Trump Care, it said that if Trump Care got into place over the next 10 years or whatever it was, 24 million fewer people would have health insurance than will have health insurance under Obamacare if the status quo remains what it is. And But they also indicated that under Obamacare, um, 28 million people will continue to remain uninsured. So moving from the Obamacare status quo to Trump care would lose 24 million people would lose their insurance. But by the same token, keeping Obamacare instead of single payer or, or universal plan will, will keep 28 million people from being insured. So there are similar magnitudes. In fact, the Obamacare to single payer magnitude is higher. It's 28 versus the Obamacare to Trump care is 24. Um, so if, if you look at the Obama, if you, if you look at Trump care and you find it to be just the most disgusting moral document you've ever seen, which is what a lot of liberal pundits were saying, including Ezra Klein, because you just think about how gut-wrenching it is to have 24 million people thrown off their insurance. Well, then you should also look at the status quo and say, well, geez, under our own plan, we have 28 million people who are not able to get insurance. So that, that should be just as gut-wrenching. Um, but it seems to not be. <laughs> For one reason or another, they seem to be more cavalier about the people their plan keeps uninsured. Um, so the piece is kind of highlighting that hypocrisy, if you will. Well, uh, what do you think does drive that sentiment? It's not necessarily liberal opposition always to single payer, but at least liberal a liberal coolness towards the proposition. Yeah, I mean, uh, partisanship obviously is a big part of it, um, you know. Trump care. So, so I would say one partisanship, right? It's a Republican bill versus they have the democratic status quo position. And you're always just more sympathetic to what your side is doing uh, than what the other side is doing. The second is a, um, what they call, I guess, status quo bias, um, or maybe loss aversion would be a similar kind of psychological trick, which is that, um, it's to have people have insurance and then lose it feels a lot more devastating than people just never getting insurance in the first place because you feel you're just much more viscerally affected by people having stuff taken away from them than people who just never really got on board to begin with. Um, so I think, and, and you know, I think um, when it comes to Obamacare versus single payer, they've convinced themselves so thoroughly that single payer is this impossibility that they don't feel uncomfortable about being happy about Obamacare because they say, well, this is the best we could possibly get, anyways, practically speaking, given the politics of it. So, you know, we should at least be happy with it um, and, and not feel bad about its downfalls. Uh, so some combination of that, I'm sure, um, sort of drives the somewhat odd, you know, distinction between how upset they are at 24 million people losing health care under Trump care and how blase they are about 28 million people not getting health care under Obamacare. 
You uh, you cited, I think, a pretty revealing tweet from Paul Waldman, a uh, Washington Post blogger and American prospect writer, uh, where, where uh, he responded to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders tweeted, never lose sight of the fact that our ultimate goal is not just playing defense. Our goal is a Medicare for all single single payer system. And Waldman responded, like saying, never lose sight of the fact that our goal is to remodel the kitchen when the when there are arsonists pouring gasoline on your porch. That that whole dynamic seems to encapsulate this uh, uh, liberal sense, commonplace liberal sensibility that dreaming big and having a goal of what we really want is that that even thinking about the perfect um, is an enemy of the good. Yeah, that it that might be part of it. I mean, one of the hard things with metaphors is people are always able to, you never necessarily know. Uh, that's the great, the greatness of literary devices and the torture of literary devices is you can kind of, uh, decide to interpret them how you want. Um, I would put I, Wald, I would put Waldman's metaphor more under the torture in more in the torture category, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, you know, because uh, because when I point my point was, OK, if you, what is remodeling the kitchen now, when you remodel the kitchen? You know, it's not like the old kitchen you had didn't work. It did work. You just want to put, you know, a prettier face on it or maybe upgrade the appliances a little bit or something like that. Like fundamentally, it's fine, and it's a kind of discretionary, mostly aesthetic change. Um, that was sort of my read on it. Um, but when I sort of made that point, of course, I had dozens of people with their own counter interpretations of of what he might have meant. Um, and I'm always like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what what a particular metaphor means. It seems to me like he thinks that, um, you know. It's a sort of uh, surface level aesthetic change to go from Obamacare to single payer when, in fact, it's, it should be like a fundamental change, um, not unlike, um, you know, going from Trump care to Obamacare or something like that. Um, of course, the tweet also contains. A you know the the pouring down the ga- the the the, pour- the gasoline like burning down the house thing is is a sort of loss aversion point. Um, so on the one hand, he seems to be emphasizing like oh in this one they're going backwards and they're trying to tear it down, um, and so that's somewhat different from um, you know that that's a somewhat more alarming thing. Um, but it's not really if you quantify it. Um, 24 million versus 28 million, like we've been saying. So, um, it, I don't know. It's hard to say, uh, exactly what he meant, but, but I, if I can, I mean, um, when, when it comes to sort of like the aesthetic change that, that seems to be something that is a little bit more of a widespread sentiment than people recognize among liberal pundits is th- there are some people who do think that Obamacare is, basically universal health insurance. And so they're like, what does it matter? We have this basically universal health insurance plan and yeah, it's a little ugly. We have like this some Medicaid and there's some Medicare and there's some employer stuff and there's some individual stuff and it's kind of slapped together and looks terrible. But 
you know, it works and it's universal and it is what it is. And these people who want to come in with single payer, they basically just want to restructure everything, but reach essentially the same outcome of universal care. Um, and that may have also been the kind of thread that he was tapping into. Um, but that's also just not true. <laughs> you know, it's not universal care. So he was also perhaps tapping into, uh, an audience who might be familiar with the process of kitchen remodeling, which I think is an aesthetic project that I think many Americans have not, maybe not, are not able to afford. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you, well, for one, you have to own your own home to remodel a kitchen. Uh, so that's already disqualifying to like, you know, half the people. So. During, uh, during last year's primary, um, Hillary Clinton argued against Bernie Sanders' proposal for free public higher education because it would pay to send rich kids like Trump's kids to school. Um, at least a couple of years back, you were skeptical about, though not outright opposed to, proposals for free higher ed for, for different reasons, um, because it would disproportionately benefit college kids in general, who generally speaking, are much more well-to-do than kids who just have a high school degree or less. What's your current take, uh, given that that issue was sort of thrust into the center of the primary last year? Yeah, my take is pretty similar to what it was. My issue, as I raised it, was not the kind of Clinton issue, which is that this supports rich students when it should support poor students. My position is that providing benefits to students ignores non-students. That's a real like fundamental issue that we have here when it comes to uh, getting people out of high school into the labor force, which is still fundamentally what college is about for most people, even if it has other purposes. Um, it's really non-students that are floundering. They have super high unemployment. They, 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 you know, often will get locked up and go to jail and, you know, their way, they come from much poorer backgrounds. They have much poorer futures. And so when we're thinking about how to basically help young people become attached to the labor force, something that just increases subsidies to students while ignoring non-students is not a, it, it's sort of fundamentally not a universal program in a way, right? It's still universal free college, but it's not universal benefits for young adults who are trying to get into workforce. Um, so that's sort of been my main objection. Um, and then I've just had a number of other kind of subsidiary objections, right? Which is like the way we talk about free college is so weird. And even Bernie did this somewhat where it's like people who have worked hard and done a good job in high school, they got in the grades and blah, 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 blah. Like they deserve free college. There's a almost like meritocratic argument for why they should get these benefits. And that's like totally contrary to how you should want to sell any kind of welfare system, right? It's You don't get benefits because you've worked hard and gotten the grades and therefore deserve them. You get benefits because you need them or because we're just giving them to everyone because it meets a general need or something like that. So like that, that way it's sold is like really problematic. Um, and then also 
um, it's it's kind of sold sort of sort of similar on that point, but a little bit different. It's sold as not really a benefit program, um, but as almost a separate thing, you know, an investment in the future um, or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and in that sense, it doesn't do a really good job of tying students to the overall welfare regime. So like if you go to a country like Finland, or um, Sweden or something like that, that has these free benefits. These benefits are paid out. Um, benefits paid to students are paid out from the same welfare agency as you would go if you were like a single mother and didn't have a job. Like they have sort of connected it all together, right? We like, on the one hand, we give benefits to students because students need benefits. They're not working, they're young you know, and on the other, and, and at the same time and with the same agency and the same group, we're giving money to uh, disabled people who can't work. And we're giving money to uh, uh, parents who have just had a kid and like all that's coming from the same place. And that does a lot to kind of create the solidarity around the welfare state. Um, And that's not what goes on in the way that we talk about student benefits. So it's like, there's a lot that's just missing from it. Um, both the non-student benefits, the kind of meritocratic theory of it, the, and, and the hiving off of it from the, the rest of the welfare state that is like really not helpful. Um, and that's sort of been how I've critiqued it. That's a really interesting take. It, it seems like your worry is that um, if free higher ed isn't done right, it'll end up looking a lot more like the mortgage interest deduction, just sort of like a quiet uh, giveaway to middle class people who feel like they're entitled to such giveaways. What would a free higher ed plan look like that you could get behind? So well, I have not done a good job of articulating an alternative. <laughs> uh, I, I have tried lately, very briefly, I wrote a post on Medium um, about what I called somewhat probably wonkishly attachment benefits, um, which would be uh, basically benefits for everyone between the ages of like 18 and 24. Uh, and you might expand it out a little bit more than that, but, but the basic idea is, okay, we're taking people who have gotten past high school age. Um, hopefully most of them have passed high school is maybe a few of them haven't whatever. And we had this period between age, you know, 18 and 25, where what we're trying to do is get them permanently attached to the labor force. Um, and that's the sort of prime working years in the way that most economists define that term are ages 25 to 54. Um, and then obviously there's, there's some people who work a little bit before that and some people who continue to work for a while after that. Um, but those are like the core years. And so what we're trying to do is get people well-situated for age 25 to come around and they're in a nice, like a permanent job that they feel they have the skills for and are comfortable for and so on. And so attachment benefits then be like, okay, you have your choice. If you want to go to college, you're going to get free college. If you want to go, uh, if you want to do a trade or whatever, we're going to get free training for a trade. We'll pay for an apprenticeship. We'll do whatever, you know, it takes for that. Uh, if you just want to have work experience to try to 
you know, get up the ladder somewhere, then we can provide in-work subsidies to help you get work experience at a job that may not pay very well. Um, like whatever it takes basically to get you to that next level, um, big jobs programs, blow out AmeriCorps, like whatever, um, to try to get benefits to all the people in that zone. And then of course, treat those benefits as one in the same, you know, on the one hand, yeah, this is for people who go to college, but it's also for people who don't go to college and, um, and then also connected to the overall welfare system. Like I was talking before, where it's like, this is also the, basically from the same pool that pays out disability pensions and pays out paid leave and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's my abstract ideal, I guess, of how I would sell it. Um, and I also think that like, if you notice like Republicans are chomping at the bit to criticize Democrats sort of weirdly as like elitists for focusing so much on college, that's their like blue collar, like resentment that they're trying to gin up whenever Democrats are like, we need free college. Someone like Rubio is like, Oh, we need a philosophy degree we need some more <laughs> some more english literature degrees ha 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 like it's just meant to like get those like rust belters who are kind of have resentment and stuff to to that to be like oh you see who the democrats really care about um so this will just be a trying way to, to inside that. inside a hard hat riot <laughs> yeah exactly like and then you open yourself up for it when you're talking about college and you're not talking about the people who don't go to college, which is still, even among the youngest people right now, still like half the people or, or a little bit more than half are not going to college. And so, you know, you gotta be cognizant of that. It's um, your argument's really interesting. And if I understand it right, your critique of the Sanders style program is really in a sense, an expansion of Sanders' critique of Clinton's program, which is that for both moral and political reasons, um, one wants to make economic and social protection programs as universal as possible. Is that right? Yeah, that's certainly how I see it. That's not how my my critics <laughs> come back at me uh, about it. But yeah, I see it as a more, more um, thorough application of universalism. Um, in, in, in its spirit than, than what just kind of naive, simple, free college uh, does. The, the logic at play there, I think, also seems to apply to the labor movement in that public sector unions, um, which have been exposed to pretty successful right-wing campaigns to destroy them in Wisconsin and elsewhere, um, that they've been exposed to those and vulnerable to them precisely because private sector unions have already been decimated. So it becomes all too easy to convince private sector employees that public employees have it easy because the very same corporations attacking public sector unions have already screwed private sector workers so thoroughly. They can point to public sector workers and say, uh, why should they have it so good and on the taxpayer dime? Republicans have made destroying unions in both sectors a top priority, obviously, while Democrats, it doesn't seem like, have done uh, very little to defend them aside from uh, attending Labor Day uh, picnics and, and whatnot. Why, why do you think that, uh, that the two sides 
see the stakes of the war over labor so differently? That's a really good question. After this last election, I don't remember what house it was. Maybe it was Missouri. I don't know. But one, like shortly after the election, we had a few states that went red in terms of their state legislature. And one of the first things some of those states did was come in on labor stuff and try to get rid of public sector unions in their state or do right to work in their state or whatever. Um, like, like right off the bat, they recognize like that's key. Um, it's key in so many ways. One, just because, you know, they have this sort of pro-business orientation and they don't like labor messing up uh, companies, being able to make decisions and blah, blah, blah. But also, and perhaps more importantly, because labor is such a huge political force that's able to mobilize members to knock doors, to vote, and mobilize members' money to, uh, you know, fund campaigns and that kind of thing. Um, and so, like, they get it. Um, they really do. And and the Democrats, on the other hand, like, they just they don't seem to care that much, certainly not on the same level. Like, you could never imagine a situation where the Democrats take control of a, of a, of a state that used to be red. And we're like, all right, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the right to work law. Like it's just gone. Like no one does that. No one cares about that. It's, it's not top of the agenda for anybody. Um, and I can't say why that is. It obviously was not, it's not like historically it hasn't been the case. Historically, the Democrats understood for at least the middle of the century how important labor was. Um, but lately, at least, they, they've moved away from their reliance on labor um, and, and not really done a whole lot except maybe appoint you know, a friendly NLRB staff or, or something like that when they can. Um, but they haven't done things like pass the Employee Free Choice Act, the, the card check bill that would make it a lot easier to organize unions. Or, you know, just generally try to, like, fundamentally overhaul the labor law regime to make it more modern and more capable of, you know, getting people into unions under the current conditions that we we now face, which are no longer industrial plants employing, you know, 5,000 people, but are instead, you know, there's the gig jobs and there's these small service sector places that might employ 10 or 15 people or something like that. They, they, they have no interest, it seems, in really doing that um, over their other um, priorities. All right, I'm going to play a listener question. Hey, Matt and The Dig. Uh, my name is Dan Webb, a longtime caller, first-time listener. Uh, my question is, for Matt, uh, since the obstacles to single-payer and other programs like a UBI are seemingly so many, at the federal level, how much effort should we focus on enacting them at the state level? Uh, and if you agree that that's a correct strategy, which states are the most likely uh, for these kind of programs to succeed, in your opinion? Thank you. So the question is about state single-payer versus national single-payer. Um, and UBI in generally, whether whether we should be attacking those at the state level, given uh, the complete shutoutness of of anything resembling a left on the federal level so you know the problem with doing things on the state 
things that cost, you know, a good deal of money or whatever is that, you know, the state is subject to a lot more pressures from uh, capital flight and the flight of, you know, rich people into other states and that kind of thing than the federal government is, right? Like most people don't immigrate out of the country because, you know, the federal government increases taxes or something like that. And of course, most people don't do that on the state level either, but they might um, if it's easy for them to move across the border or something like that. And they make a lot of money. They might do that. Um, and the same same thing applies for stuff that you might try to impose on businesses. So one of the obvious ways to fund single payer is through these uh, payroll taxes on businesses um, and you know, businesses choose where to, where to locate themselves. Um, and they might decide, oh, well, it's not worth it to us to locate in this, you know, small state, like let's say Vermont, when we could locate in New Hampshire, or we could locate in, you know, nearby Connecticut or something like that. Um, so they're just, states are much more subject to these kinds of you know, capitalist pressures, if you will, and the ability of those with money under capitalism to really uh, decide to, to punish, if you will, states that don't go along with it. So that's like always the risk. Um, with that said, you know, some states are more able to be, um, some states you can do it, you can do it better at than others. So Vermont's not a great state in this front because it's very small kind of rural, not, not especially rich. Um, and you know, it's easy for businesses and rich people to come out of Vermont and go elsewhere. But a state like California is giant, quite rich. I think one of the richest states in the country, um, has, you know, industries that are for better or worse, like they're there and they're kind of stuck there because they have, uh, you know, built up so much. So Silicon Valley and Hollywood and those kind of places. So a state like that, I think is a much more doable, it's a much more doable strategy. And the same for New York to some degree, because uh, Wall Street is, is not able to be moved really in finance in general, um, is not able to be moved at this point. Um, so some states, I think you can do it. It's always harder to do it on the state level. Um, but you know, it's worth trying, I suppose. Um, UBI is, is an even harder, uh, situation, I guess, than single payer on the state level, because UBI, you also worry about maybe attracting people into the state, um, who don't, you know, want to work or whatever. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, if you think about in the country, there may only be 1% of the people who want to live like a bohemian UBI lifestyle in any given moment in time. But if there's one state that offers that, then they'll all move into that state conceivably, uh, or a lot of them will. And, and then they become a huge population of that state and become a big burden, you know? So it's like an adverse selection problem. Um, but if you do it on a national level, you don't have that same problem. Though that would be convenient for me because I would have one place where I could visit all of my friends at, at once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it could stimulate like uh, New Ham when New Hampshire, there was that plan among libertarians to like take over New Hampshire by having them all move there. Like 
this might be a way to do that for for you know leftist types or whatever to to flood in and and create some sort of artist colony or whatever um, but <laughs> on on know. UBI on UBI more generally um do you think that it's a a desirable reform one and two um what should we make of the fact that so many silicon valley types um, who would like to technocratically manage the world while the rest of us collect government checks at home, support it. Um, how do you see UBI and the different ways of approaching it? Yeah, so I think UBI is good. Um, the way I think about UBI is a, as a way of, of dealing with the capital problem. You know, every socialist has to think about what are we doing here with capital? Like we, we all recognize that capital is a little bit of a weird force or it's like not totally exploitive force because it extracts like 30% of the national income every year and pays it out to people who own capital, which ends up being a very small chunk of the population. Uh, and then that, you know, gives them all sorts of power and authority and, give them control over government, which has to be, you know, sensitive to the needs of capital, lest they find themselves, you know, disinvested and blah, blah, blah. And so that is my answer to the capital problem, which is socialize capital as much as you can practically into these social wealth funds, which are like endowments, essentially, that the country runs, then the social wealth funds will deliver capital returns just like endowments do and take those returns and pay them out to everyone as part of a social dividend. So that uh, has been a sort of market socialist idea for, I don't know, maybe a hundred years now. Um, Oscar Lange, I think that's how you say his name was, is credited as being like the first guy, I guess, in recent history too sort of float that idea out there. Um, so that's how I think about it is as sort of answering that capital problem, take capital income, which currently is paid out passively to a small chunk of the public and fan it out across society um, over time through gradually socializing it into a social wealth fund. The Silicon Valley types and the libertarian types more generally, they seem to have a different story which is unrelated to the funding mechanism, which to me is key, uh, to them isn't. Unrelated to the funding mechanism, what, we're, what we have coming on in society is this new wave of automation that's going to destroy so many jobs, create such enormous dislocation in society that we basically need the UBI to smooth out that dislocation and make sure everyone, you know, we don't have millions and millions who, when they become unemployed as a result of this, just end up in total misery and, and dying and get addicted to drugs and all the kinds of things that we have actually seen happen when the industrialization has cost a lot of jobs in places. Um, so that, that, that's kind of, it seems like for them, a, a remedy to the problems that their innovation is causing or that they think their innovation will cause. We haven't actually seen a whole lot of automation yet. Uh, that's more of an aspirational thing that they say is coming in the pipeline, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, so I see, I see that as just a kind of 
a little a little salve to the the pain that they expect to cause um, due to their innovations. Um, and then secondly, they seem to view it as a way to um, enable people to live, you know, somewhat decent lives while basically being like little taskers for their apps. Um, so you see that a lot where it's like, yeah, we recognize that the jobs our innovations are creating where it's like Instacart and you just go and you pick up groceries for someone or Uber and you just drive for someone or, you know, these like laundry apps where you pick up someone laundry, like all these little bitty tasker apps that have exploded lately don't create like nice, comfortable, stable jobs and stable flows of income. And so the UBI will solve that and we can have this labor force of basically unstable, lowly paid taskers that run our apps um, and the UBI will grease the wheels of that new, brave new employment situation. Um, and that's terrible. Obviously, that's a very dystopian idea, I think, to, to, left, to leftists, but um, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm going to play another listener question. Hey, Dan. My name is James Frederick. Uh, I'm calling uh, with a question from Matt Brunig. Um, is there, you know, in a society where we guarantee everyone a right to a dignified living, a basic income, health care, you know, the, the basic rights that we think every citizen should have, is there a specific um, policy or method uh, to creating that kind of atmosphere in a society that you've possibly seen in other societies, or is that something that just happens naturally over time? Uh, how can we push for this change that doesn't value um, just work to earn a, a decent living, but guarantees that right to everyone? Thanks. So the, the listener's question is, I think, how do we create the political conditions necessary to enact policies that create a more economically just society? What are the prerequisites politically to, to getting where we need to go? Yeah, well, so to the extent that it's a question about culture and how do you get everyone on board with that idea of what the state should be doing and what society should be doing, that I don't really know. Um, it seems like people change their opinions on those sorts of things by being engaged with by campaigners and organizers and that kind of thing. It's a kind of long haul of you make friends and you try to get people into your organization and you organize people at colleges and that sort of thing to get them on board with your vision of what society should look like. Um, as far as the countries that have done this, they do seem to have a very strong culture of, uh, of uh, built around their institutions where, where they did, like if you poll their societies, they, they're just like super supportive of everything, um, which is not necessarily the case when you poll people in the U S um, like not on the same level. So, for instance, you know, in the U.S., if you ask people about single-payer health care, yeah, 58% by latest polls will say that they support it. But obviously, if you were to go into 
uh, Norway or something, it would be like 95% um, where they are. So, you know, that's, uh, it's tough to get to that level um, based from, from where we are. Um, but it seems like generally like success breeds more success on that. You get things going, you make it successful and people feel like, yes, this works. And yes, you know, we, we should keep going with this. Um, and secondly, are these sort of building up civic organizations and those kinds of things that have these values at their core. So organized labor has always been a huge part of that in the countries that have these things. They've all been pushed in one form or another by workers parties and, you know, maybe another party or two that the, that party works with. Um, in the Nordic countries, it was worker parties that basically represented, you know, all the like industrial proletarians in the country, plus farmers parties. So you had the like red green alliance, they called it. And that's how they put in place their big welfare states in the middle of last century that are still there. Um, so we can't exactly copy that entirely because we don't have any farmers uh, anymore. Uh, they had still had quite a bit uh, when they were doing it and we don't, but um, you know, traditionally getting labor involved is, is, has been key. So that that's, I guess what I would focus on. Do we need a strong labor movement to do it? Um, we uh, currently lack a strong labor movement and don't seem to be in the process uh, of building one. Yeah, I mean, that's been my my thought on what we need. Uh, if you're just kind of going to like, if, if your strategy is just like, how did they do it in these other countries? Oh, well, they had a really, you know, beefy labor movement, which does all sorts of things. It provides all the political infrastructure, political money, and also just creates these, you know, civic organizations essentially locally that really emphasize these values and people you know, identify along those lines. They think of themselves as like, I'm a union member and here's what union members are like. And here's what we think. Here's what, you know, what my people think essentially, because that, that's how they identify their people as, as being, you know, union folks. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to know how to get there from here. Um, and so, it might be worth thinking about alternative mechanisms and, you know, maybe it is the case that in the U S given where we are, the way that you're going to build something like this is through other organizations like, uh, you know, some of these socialist dues paying organizations that have been, you know, exploding since the election where you can, you know, build a community and a civic community basically around your identity as a socialist or a leftist or whatever, and you have meetings and you pay dues and you, you know, build a whole sort of little, uh, you know, community and grouping around that uh, and identity, if you will, around that. Um, that might be another avenue towards the same basic goal of you know, creating organization that makes people feel and identify this way. Well, following up on that, what what do you make of DSA in particular's uh, explosive growth and what do you think its trajectory might be? 
I mean, obviously it's very impressive, um, especially because it's dues paying. That's always been the, the thing is you can often put together an organization, move on, did this and progressive Democrats of America did this where, you know, basically you just like sign up to be a member and then they come out and they're like, we have 150,000 members, but it's like basically a mailing list of people who, you know, sign up as members, but don't contribute anything. Um, but requiring people to contribute, like that is really the test of, are you serious about this or not? Um, and that's what Acorn used to do, for instance. Um, I think it moved away from that a little bit near the end, but that was like something they viewed as crucial to how they organized was, even though we're basically organizing some of the poorest people in the country, they must pay dues into Acorn um, because that gives them ownership over the organization. That really is a test of how serious they are about it. Um, can we rely upon them to, to do something? Um, so building out big dues paying socialist organizations is like a dream. And the fact that some people are seem to be doing that is, is really impressive. Um, as far as their path forward, it's hard to say. I mean, it seems like they're focused a lot right now on elections um, and to some degree sort of like going out to rallies and organizing and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, that seems, that definitely seems like something someone should be doing. Like there should be someone down ballot trying to elect socialists into city councils and stuff like that. Um, because that's how you get someone like Bernie Sanders ultimately is, you know, he started out as a local, you know, city councilman or mayor and, you know, kind of moved up through the ranks from there. So, you know, getting people on that treadmill, uh, which they seem to be, you know, decent at doing, they have a, a few candidates running in city councils and stuff who are doing pretty well. Um, it seems like a important work, if not the most important work. In March, all these podcasts were asking listeners to tell their friends about their favorite podcasts. It's April now, but I'm still going to ask you to do that. We have been growing fast and getting enormously positive feedback about the show. Today, we have nearly 15,000 downloads an episode. And we think there are a lot more people out there who don't know about The Dig, but would like us if they did. So please, take a minute to share this episode or another one on Facebook or Twitter. You can also, of course, feel free to tell people in real life, if that's your thing. Thanks. Shifting gears, I want to turn to the question of punching. First, we have hippie punching, which refers to centrist liberals taking a shot at the left so as to present themselves as reasonable by contrast. Then we have Nazi punching, which is when Antifa activists actually punch white supremacists like Richard Spencer. And I think there's another type of punching, which is by no means new, but is emerging as a popular liberal coastal elite hobby since Trump's election. And that's redneck punching. And I will define redneck punching 
as when said liberal coastal elites blame Trump and all of America's problems on poor, ignorant white people and even take cheer in the fact that regressive policies pursued by Trump will fuck them. Matt, what does redneck punching tell us about the state of American liberalism? Redneck punching is really fascinating on so many levels. Um, and I mean, what I would say is in terms of what it, how it's motivated is this is kind of an outgroup that they, that liberals, because they don't vote for liberals, very distant from elite liberals, at least on the coasts and that kind of thing, they have felt invigorated about just, you know, crapping all over them in a way that you wouldn't see for other groups of people. Um, but the way in which they kind of crap on them, they talk about like their backwardness or they like eat up the hillbilly elegy, like JD Vance type stuff, which is basically just pathologizing these people as like just living the most wretched lives where their families are broken down and they're just on drugs and blah, blah, blah. Um, What's interesting about it is how similar it is to what the right wing has been saying for so long about, you know, poor urban communities or whatever, by which they mean black people. Um, And it basically mirrors that situation so perfectly, right? Republicans feel comfortable doing that to, you know, lower class blacks because lower class blacks will never vote Republican, or at least, you know, we can't imagine it in our lifetime. Um, And liberals seem to, who have that, those same impulses, but kind of hold them in when it comes to lower class black people because they feel sympathy or because they, you know, lower class black people vote for Democrats, they don't hold them in when it comes to lower class white people. And so it's this sort of weird arrangement where you have elites on both sides of the political spectrum basically saying the same thing about, you know, lower class whites if you're a liberal or lower class blacks if you're a white, uh, if you're a, a Republican. Um, and, but then being kind of sensitive for the most part when you say that about, you know, their side of the, of the thing. So, you know, so, some people will break off, but for the most part, Republicans get nervous or, or get defensive if you start kind of crapping on lower class whites and rednecks and hillbillies. And they've done a really good job of like celebrating them and their culture and real America and blah, blah, blah. Um, but then similarly, liberals do the same thing when it comes to lower class uh, black people. Um, and so I don't know exactly what to make of that. Uh, what one uh, theory that Benjamin Dixon floated when I was on his show um, at the Progressive Army, I think it's called. Well, his show is called the Benjamin Dixon Show, but it's part of the Progressive Army Network. Is this like these kinds of liberals, uh, these sort of like elite liberals that write in these places, they are basically that close at all times to just being like, pull up your pants, like Bill Cosby style, just, just really kind of horrific reactionary politics. Um, but they hold it in for various, um, you know, tribal reasons. Um, 
until they feel like, ah, here's a group in which I can really unload. Um, so that, you know, maybe that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a wealthy liberals pay uh, this respect to poor people of color, but just rhetorically, because at the more materially, they organize their entire lives around not sending their kids to school with poor kids uh, of color. So it's sort of this divide between what they say and what they do, and then uh, they get it out of their system when it comes to poor white people, which I think is not just class animosity, it's it's also um, deeply interconnected to uh, white racism in the sense that these um, white liberal elites are very interested in in racializing white poor people as so other from them that they don't that they don't taint their upstanding version of, of whiteness. Yeah, that's a really good point. The, the last point, especially, um, I mean, there's the whole, it, it's like, <laughs> these are white trash. These are like, not, you know, I'm not like these people. I'm much better than these people. I'm not racist like these people. I definitely like, uh, you know, people of color and so on. Unlike these people, um, but then like you note is despite their intense, you know, protests and, uh, efforts, it seems to distance from them. Um, when, when, when the rubber hits the road, uh, you know, if you've ever lived in a liberal enclave, like I do in DC, it's, you kind of look around and you're like, these are the non-racist white people. Like what, what is this thing that they've established in the city where all the white people live in Northwest DC and all the black people live in Southeast DC and Anacostia and poverty and public housing projects and so on. And never the two shall meet. Um, it's like, I'm quite certain if you were to poll all the people in Northwest DC and, and, and do these things that they do to try to figure out, you know, racial bias, such as ask them, you know, on a feeling thermometer uh, from zero degrees to 100 degrees, where 100 degrees is good and zero degrees is bad. How do you feel about people of color? They would be like 100. I love them. I'm not racist whatsoever. And, and then yet here we are in one of the most segregated cities in the country um, that puts 90 plus percent Democrat. Um, so there's a weird... You know, it's it's a weird performative component to it, like you said, weird distancing component, weird desire to not confront their own issues and the way in which they seem to behave and act in very structurally racist ways, even if they claim not to have those attitudes that the white trash have. Um, but, but yeah. yeah. That, that, that seems to be it. Their, their practices are, are so profoundly racist. It does seem like there's a need to displace that guilt onto uh, poor white people who might have uh, who have no who have no, very little power, but might have racist thoughts or ideas in their head. Um, and then using the term white trash, the modifier, the need to modify white with trash um, pretty obviously, I think, signifies that whiteness otherwise, uh, normal whiteness, unmarked whiteness, is a treasure, you know, not, not trash, but, but amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, um, 
yeah, if you're, <laughs> it's, unless, unless uh, you're a white person who's been, you know, messed up in some way because you're been living in the holler and have developed these parochial racist views, you, it's good. You're actually good um, until you get, you know, messed up like white trash do. Um, and get, like and in get, reality, no. and get meth mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get hookworm and, uh, you know, that, that's what they used to. I don't know if this is a bit of a, a side, but um, for, for a while I was like studying the history of poor whites in the country. And there are like a number of books written on this, though not, not very many um, that kind of focus on like social attitudes towards poor whites. And what's funny is we've seen this of like J.D. Vance and so on and like the stories of those renaissance the way it works is like these communities used to be good and they were upstanding and they had intact families and blah 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 and they just fallen apart and they disintegrate it's kind of a decline story um, but you can go back 50 years 75 years 100 years even back to the civil war and see literally the exact same story that J.D. Vance is throwing out there um, being written by, for instance, professors of Duke University um, who would write stuff like uh, <laughs> they, one of the big common maladies was hookworms, uh, which is like some intestinal parasite. And like you got hookworms from eating dirt, um, which like, well, yeah, like clearly they're so poor, they're eating dirt and getting hookworms. And then like hookworms also like screw you up and like you can't do anything because you have like this intestinal parasite and it just makes you super fatigued all the time. And like <laughs> he wrote something like, um, you know, the liberal reformer will tell you that hookworms cause, you know, the poor white to be lazy and improvident. But actually it's the opposite. The poor white being lazy and improvident is what causes them to get hookworms. <laughs> um, so, like, it's very much like just just flip the material analysis on its head and be like, if you weren't so lazy, you wouldn't be eating dirt to begin with. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's a long way to go to say like these are attitudes that have been along around for a long time among upper class whites. Um, in which they've kind of bemoaned their hillbilly neighbors in one way or another um, to kind of be like, we're not like them for one reason or another. And right now, the big thing that they seem to fixate on is how they're morally bad, um, namely because they're racist. Um, but of course, in the past, that wasn't the problem with them because in the past, the upper class whites were very openly racist and didn't see an issue with that. You know, um, so it's kind of the, the particular lo locus of the pathology has shifted, but it's the same kind of, you know, us versus them, white trash versus good white story. They're bringing down the brand. Um, continuing along uh, those lines, you've uh, you've made some incisive criticisms about how liberals uh, grapple with Trump's brazen xenophobia and racism and made the case that the liberal view of diversity often weirdly mirrors the conservative view. 
Many liberals believe that it's wrong to provide any economic context as for why people voted for Trump and that the only viable explanation is this sort of primordial biological racism emanating from white people's lizard brains. Um, Naturally, xenophobic conservatives also believe that foreign cultures are innately unsuitable and unassimilable to a European and Christian majority America. Why why do liberals have such a strange and incoherent position that, as you point out, mirrors the conservative position? So they didn't used to have this view, at least in my sort of, uh, you know, unscientific assessment of where the the discourse was. Um, They didn't it didn't seem that didn't seem to be the position. Right. The position seemed to basically be, uh, you know, look, race is a social construct. you know, cultures are socially constructed and yeah, obviously there's difference that results from that. And obviously we got to recognize like historical legacies of those differences and that sort of thing. But like fundamentally people are people just because your skin is darker than mine doesn't mean we can't get along. Um, that's, you know, a social barrier that people are constructing and it's not real. You can be friends, people, get along well with them. It's fine. And so conservatives who come out and are like, no, we need the separation of the races and blah, blah, blah. They're just wrong. Um, so like this, you would see obviously when the big movement was civil rights movement and desegregation and integration and that kind of thing, like the clear, obviously, you know, left liberal position was that integration is fine like it's not the case that like the mixture of the peoples creates massive like necessarily creates like terrible anxiety and social distrust and blah 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 because people are people ultimately and we can all get along and we have more in common than we have difference and it's good um but since the election it seems like in order to reach the conclusion that they want to reach about what motivated the election, they have adopted a lot of sort of right-wing talking points that previously I had seen associated a lot with people who, with with right-wingers who want to talk about why we can't have good welfare systems. Um, Because if you talk about, say, Nordic welfare systems in Sweden and Denmark and Finland, like the first thing any right-winger will say is they'll be like, well, those are homogenous countries. Um, and that's not actually true uh, anymore. Like Sweden is definitely not a homogenous country. It has more immigration on a per capita basis than the U.S. does. Um, but putting that aside, like basically what they're saying is, well, this, it's just white people there, so they don't, they don't have the problems that we have with, you know, all these different racial groups and, you know, the problems that causes. Um and, you know, again, the prior to the election, the rural response was like, that's bull. like, yeah, we have more racial groups, but that doesn't mean we can't put together good programs. Look, we have Social Security. It works great. We have Medicare. It also works great. We have free public school, which, you know, has problems here and there, but overall actually works pretty good. Um, you know, we like we have programs that are similar to theirs and they work fine. Um, but. Now they've kind of started to adopt the conservative position, which is like, no, 
there's something deep about the human psyche, uh, about the tribal human psyche, <laughs> such that, you know, you bring in others and outsiders and that causes them to be reactionary and causes them to, you know, vote against good welfare, liberalism and blah, blah, blah. And that's why we can't win. Um, and like that gives you a really good excuse for why you lost to like a literal game show clown. Um, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really, the, the upshot of it, if it's true is what exactly like if your view now is the conservative view that no mixing of the races creates a huge problem. Well, conservatives have a clear answer to that, which is like, mix the races, close the borders, you know, deal with, you know, the, uh, assimilate everyone that we have and blah, blah, blah. Um, but liberal, what's the liberal view? The liberal view is, you know, utterly contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> Diversity is creates huge social problems, but let's go for it. It's like, what? Like you can't, that just doesn't make any sense. Like you gotta, you gotta have some theory as to how you're going to make it work. Um, and and they don't seem to anymore. Well, you you wrote that the upshot of this diversity, this liberal diversity, is inevitably painful. Um, uh, thinking was, in a sense, Bill Clinton's approach, which emphasized harsh criminal punishment and decimated welfare to perform for um, ostensibly white racist voters. That that was a that was the point of the third way as Bill Clinton pursued it, right? If you like put it into the historical context, it's like Reagan gets in, people are having these backlashes against perceived criminality and black welfare mothers and blah, blah, blah. And we've lost all these Democrats to the Reagan people because he comes in and blah, blah, blah. And so like, you know, if we want to compete again, we got to get a little racist because that's the only way to like white people can't help it. They're just racist. (laughs) Right. Like we want to win the Reagan Democrats back. You know, that's what they want. And so that was the like winning solution, if you will, to this problem as it was presented, you know, post Reagan was just like, you know, execute, uh, execute Ricky, was it Ricky Ray, Ricky Rector? I forget his name. Um, execute that mentally disabled black man in Arkansas and show how much of a big tough man you are about crime and killing, you know, mentally handicapped black people. And, you know, say the, the era of big government is over because we're going to cut welfare and get all these, you know, moochers back into work and we're going to cram, close down the borders and blah, blah, blah. Like that's all to to sort of try to thread that needle um so that that's one way to resolve it um the other way to resolve it would be to just sort of say well you know it's almost like the uh the like malcolm x strategy of just like we gotta separate them we just gotta separate we need our you know it's like richard spencer almost it's like it's like it tends towards racial nationalism because it says that, hey, you know, the, the only path to a harmonious society in which politics isn't just a um, 
place for racial groups to just sort of grudge against each other in the most like destructive, horrific ways is to just have racially homogenous nations. Um, like that would be the other alternative. Um, so neither of those are good alternatives. Um, but, but if that's, if you abide by the factual premise that humans innate tribalness creates all these problems, like where else do you go with that? Um, for my last question, I'd like to shift gears and continents to an area you have some expertise in. European neoliberalism in many ways created the conditions that the far right has recently exploited to convince people that their problems are caused by immigrants. Does what's going on currently in Finland with the decline in the far right parties there and the rise uh, in the increasing success of left parties point to a way out um, throughout Europe and maybe here as well? Yeah, the the Finland situation is really very promising for for left-wing views. So Finland has, Finland's political system is mostly dominated by, um, how many parties would you say? Uh, six main parties. There are there's the Green Party, which is similar, you know, to the Greens here, I guess. Um, there's the Social Democratic Party, which is like their Labor Party. There's the Left Alliance, which is like the communists and socialists and the kind of grab bag of people who are more to the left of the Social Democratic Party. And those are kind of the left, you know, the, the three left parties, the major left parties. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, sort of, you have the center party. And that used to be the agrarian. No, it wasn't technically the agrarian party. I think it was. Anyways, that was like the farmer's party. Um, now they don't have that many farmers anymore, though all the farmers still vote for that party, the ones that still exist. Um, but they're kind of a weird party. They're not really, they don't really have an economic definition. Um, so sometimes they join with left-wing parties to create government. Sometimes they join with right-wing parties to to create government. So it's kind of a, it's kind of an odd situation. Um, anyway, so you have the center party, you have the national coalition party, which is like the right wing business party, very akin to what you think of as just like traditional Republican stuff. But in the Finnish context, obviously it's way more left wing, um, than Republicans here. Um, and then lately you have the Finns party, which used to be called the true Finns, which kind of gives you a hint of, what they're about, which is we support the real Finns, which are the ethnic Finns, and we need to promote, you know, ethnic Finns society. It's like an ethno party, um, so they will deny that in various ways. Um, that's what it's really understood to be about. Um, anyways, in 2015, the top three parties in Finland in their election were the Finns, the, the, well, in, in order was the center party, the national coalition party, and then the Finns party. And so they came together and formed a center-right bourgeois government, which is what they actually call their governments when they're right-wing governments over there, as they call them bourgeois governments. Um, <laughs> it's kind of surprising. You read the press and it's like, you know, it's the, it's the left wing uh, forms the coalition and rules the country. They're like, 
they call it a socialist government. And if, it, if it's the right wing, they call it bourgeois government. And everyone seems like okay with that for some reason. Um, I guess the words have like different connotations or something. Um, <laughs> so they formed that and the Finns party is the third partner. And, you know, they have like over 20% of support. Um, the other two parties do as well. So combined, it's like 60% of the public or behind one of these three parties and like 20% support is serious in Finland, given the number of parties involved. They come in, they join the center right party. That's mostly interested in austerity of various sorts, trimming down wages, trimming down benefits, increasing competitiveness of exports, which also means basically trimming down labor costs and, making people work longer and cutting vacations and blah, blah, blah. Um, they joined that party. They joined that government and their support just collapses. It goes from like over 20% to less than 10% in the course of a year or two. And if you read the Finnish newspapers, which I read because some of them are published in English language, like the, the consensus is just, yeah, basically supported by like blue collar, you know, people who are also kind of racist a bit, but like, ultimately they don't want a party who comes in and cuts their wages and benefits, even if the party is like sort of racist and, you know, satisfies their anti-immigrant tendencies. So like their support base basically looks at the Finns party and says, you're a traitor to the working class, you know, to hell with you. And all of the people that have moved from the Finns party, the Finns party has lost over half its support in the last couple of years. They all moved over to a left-wing party of one or one sort or the other, mostly the social democratic party, which would be the conventional labor party of the working class. Um, the uh, only left parties have picked up as the ethno party has declined. Um, so, you know, it goes to show you that even you know, people who are not perfect and have, you know, bad views, if you will, on immigration and diversity and that sort of thing. Um, if they get screwed on just basic pocketbook issues, they jump ship and go back over to, to, you know, their old homes in the left. Um, so that's a good sign, I think, for the U.S. context, especially because, you know, Trump and the Republicans are not going to run a government that is beneficial to working class people. Um, so if we follow that same tendency, his base is going to get disillusioned and be opened up to supporting a Bernie style candidate or, or someone like that who also speaks to their issues um, and like actually intends to follow through with them instead of just, you know, using them rhetorically and then abandoning them once they get into office. Um, so, so, you know, it's promising, I think. Working class revolt minus the racism. Sounds like a good idea. Matt Brunig, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt Brunig is a writer who focuses on poverty, inequality, and welfare systems. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
We are posting a new episode every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Tristan Rodman, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts and subscribe. And also leave us a glowing review. iTunes reviews, as silly as it sounds, do help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends, both in real life and on social media. With your help, our propaganda campaign will prove irresistible. And also, please find us on Patreon and support us with a monthly payment. Even a few bucks is very helpful. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking to Nicole Ashoff about the death throes of neoliberalism and Kianga Yamada-Taylor about many, many things to be determined once I have a moment to sit down and think about it. If you're a DIG fellow traveler or party member on Patreon, call in some questions. (laughs) 